So throughout Lent, we've been meeting around the table weekly to sort of align in our practices with the things that we're asking us to align with throughout our whole lives in this season of Lent. We started Lent with Baptism Sunday, if you remember, this practice that, that draws us into Jesus in, in interesting and, and new ways, perhaps, for some of us. We talked in the first week where we started to think about communion, about the table as an open and welcoming space. Last week, we talked about how the table for the early Christians was the focus and the main point of Christian gatherings. So when Christians gathered together, they ensured that the journey they took throughout their gatherings, be they services or even just in people's homes, that this journey took them to the Eucharist and then sent them out into the world. But there's always this sort of question floating around in the back of our minds, perhaps, when it comes to the table, the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever your tradition has called this moment uh, that we have, to, to sort of really wonder through what's actually happening when we take communion together. Like, what's actually going on? What are we participating in as we come around the table? And the discussions on this within the Christian world are broad. Uh, from one end of the extreme to the other as to what actually happens when we come to the communion table. One thing's consistent. No matter what, if your, if your tradition comes from over this side, I'll let you imagine what that is, or from over this side, I'll let you imagine what that is, or from anywhere in between, we understand that something symbolic is happening, that we're doing something. This practice has symbolism to it, that we, we come forward, we receive something. We're all aware, even if we're not sure what, that some sort of symbolic action is taking place. However, what I notice, if you listen carefully enough, which I think is one of the things a pastor is supposed to do. But, but when, you, when you listen carefully enough in conversation, what you often hear, and I wonder if perhaps you've heard this, perhaps you've even said it, but please don't feel guilty if you have. When we start to talk about it regularly and we talk about the symbolic nature of gathering around the table, eventually somebody says these words. Oh, it's, it's just a symbol. And we, we, we don't have any sort of disagreement amongst the church that it is symbolic, we have disagreement over how, <laughs> but the question about this word just, oh, it's just a symbol. Some of us can live our whole lives in church, gathering around the table with this idea that it's just a symbol. Now, to be clear, when we're talking about the symbol of the table, invariably, just to be really clear, invariably what we're actually talking about is how is this the body of Jesus? In what way is this the body of Jesus? And perhaps even for some people, is this the body and cup of Jesus? Some people would say, depending on your tradition, you might say, no, it's just simply a symbol that reminds us of Jesus. But then perhaps you come from another tradition where you would say, mystically, somehow, it is the body of Jesus. But it's interesting that when we ever talk about the symbol, that's what we're thinking of. And yet we refer to it as just a symbol. And I want to say this, and I want to say this 
sort of graciously, as I was prepping for this sermon, I phrased in my mind how I was going to say it, and then I realized as I stood up to say it, it sounds a lot harsher than I wanted to sound. So what I'm asking is, if you'll let me just say it, and then you can forget how harsh it was by the end of the sermon. And I've realized that you all are very skilled in forgetting the things that I say during a sermon, so, so I figure like we know what we're doing when it comes to this. <laughs> but if ever you hear yourself or somebody else say, oh, it's just a symbol, you're making an admission that you've never really thought through what a symbol is. That you've never really explored in your own reflections what a symbol is. When we call it just a symbol, we're releasing a little bit of insight into the way we think, or rather, how we haven't thought. More significantly, and this is really what I want to wrestle with in our teaching this morning, is that when we're unwilling to explore the depth of the symbol that we partake in when we come to the communion table, we actually shortchange ourselves practically in our faith and in our being the church. And so I want us to try and hold those things together. We're going to do that by talking a little bit about 1 Corinthians. uh, But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit more about just a symbol. I'm going to show you a symbol right now. This is a symbol. Now, I am wise enough to not, in this room, say this is just a symbol. Because, like, I mean, I'm Scottish, I'm okay being a minority, but I don't think I'm winning this fight. (laughs) However, fun fact, just on the side, my my wife and daughter and I discovered just this this month that we have been granted a permanent right to remain here in Canada. Um, So I, thank you. Um, (laughs) So thank you for not sharing your real opinions about me with the government. Um, But here is a simple, so anyway, I I appreciate on my journey, as I journey further towards becoming a citizen of this great country, I am wise enough to not talk about this symbol when we're talking about symbols. So let's talk about a different symbol. (laughs) At some point in history, some people took some strips of material that were red, white, and a square of blue, stitched them together, sewed some stars on them, and made just a symbol? Now, if you're British, of which there's at least me in the room that is, when you see this sign and know a little bit of its history, the color choices interest you. Because at the point in history where this flag appeared, the point in history where this flag entered the social debate, this choice of color scheme was saying something. Because there was another group of people who this this group of people may have been trying to get away from, and you may have noticed the flag colors are the same. (laughs) But they're formed in a different way to say something. Just a symbol? Interestingly then, this flag stood against the oppression of the king and the queen. And so the language that was used about the British symbol of king and queen was one that was opposed by this symbol of this flag. Fascinatingly, if you watch the development of our neighbors, you'll notice that the way they talk about a flag is how we used to talk about a king and queen. See, because symbols of patriotism, symbols of government, symbols of rule, they have some weight to them, and they carry some things. There's a, there's a, a moment in the Second World War 
and I'm not passing judgment on the rights or wrong of this particular moment, but you probably can recall the moment where in one particular battle in the Pacific, a group of American soldiers climbed to a high point in the battlefield and hoisted up an American flag at great risk to their life. They made a movie about it. The movie is very biased. Um, it, was, it was made in America. But think about this for a minute. Just a symbol? Or something that somebody would risk their life for to get to the top of a hill to fly? The question you might want to ask yourself is, did those men go to the top of that hill at great personal risk and at this, the possible cost of their lives, did they get to the top of the hill because it looks nice? Or was something else going on a few weeks ago at baptism, and I don't want to rehearse this conversation with you because you can go and listen to it if you want, but I asked a question about baptism about a kiss and what is involved in a kiss. When you see someone kiss their loved one, do you say, oh, look at that, it's just a symbol? Oh, you do. <laughs> Heartless lot. <laughs> is it just a symbol? Or is a kiss deeper than that? And actually, when we call a kiss a symbol, are we saying there's more going on here than just two people putting their lips together? The symbol has more to it. Our world is full of symbols. There are symbols all over the place. But here's an interesting thing, and let me say it like this. Symbols and signs cause what they symbolize. And that sounds like a slightly abstract thing to say, so let me just repeat it one time and then think about it. Symbols and signs cause what they symbolize. To really understand the power of a symbol is to realize that the symbol, if it truly is a symbol, is doing something, and generally it's doing the very thing that it's symbolizing. Let me explain it like this. What does a flag represent? It represents a country. It represents a way of being. It represents a belief structure. In one hand, it's just bits of material sewn together. But we know that it's much more than just bits of material stuck together. In fact, if you've ever been in one of those sort of situations where perhaps at your favorite sports game, and right before you're playing a team from another country, they play the national anthems. And you'll notice that in your own heart, it's quite likely that your own national anthem kind of raises the hairs on the back of your head differently than the other country's national anthem. Like you hear both those national anthems, right? You gather in a hockey rink, old Canada, star-spangled banner. I mean, because, you know, the hockey league, this international hockey league that only seems to allow two countries to play in it. Um, the <laughs> so there's only two options you have. You'll hear this national anthem or that national anthem. Like you, your response to both national anthems is not the same, right? You're not there going, oh, I just love national anthems. Like they just do something in me. No, because what happens when you see your flag, you feel a little more patriotic, don't you? The flag is a symbol of patriotism that in some weird, slightly unusual way causes your own patriotic feelings to rise. Or is that just the Scots? <laughs> right, something's going on because the symbol speaks to the thing that it symbolizes. A kiss is more than just a kiss. Perhaps you've heard, you know, it all started with a kiss. I'm not sure if that phrase right there is, is, is kind of just below PG-13 enough to get away with in a Sunday morning service. 
But we all know that a kiss is more than just a kiss. We know also intuitively that a flag is more than just a flag. It does something in us. Think about even just at the moment. You see this in the UK, you're seeing it in America, and you also are seeing it in Canada. If somebody takes a flag and hangs it from their truck, I heard it. It does something in you, doesn't it? Now, I have no... I have no point to make here politically, hear me well on this. But when you see a flag hanging from someone's truck, I would ask you this, just tell me if I'm not telling the truth that you decide something in your heart about that person. It may be that you support them, it may be that you don't support them, but the flag symbolizes something, doesn't it? Just a month or so ago, I pulled up at a a red light and there's this guy in a truck pulls up next to me and he has a Canada flag hanging off the back of his truck and, uh, and he has a, a good beard, right? You know, and, uh, and he looks over at me and I have an average beard compared to him and, uh, and he looks at me and I look at him and he does this. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm driving a Prius, okay? <laughs> so I'm a British guy in a Prius and he's in an F-350 with a flag hanging off the back, and the thing that's bonding us together is the symbol of the beard, because I'm like, buddy, you and me are on different journeys. (laughs) Because symbols say something to each other. Which brings us to the table of the Lord. Some bread, some wine, some juice in our case, and a wafer Made of, we're not really sure what. (laughs) Because it seems the list of things that are not in it is all the things. (laughs) Um, And so, sometimes when I was prepping this sermon, I was thinking of maybe saying, you already believe in miracles because you eat this bread and you have no idea what it is, but you believe that it's even eatable. (laughs) Edible, that's the word, edible. (laughs) Eatable. (laughs) I have a PhD, can you tell? Um, (laughs) Bread, cup, wafer, juice. Both of them have purpose, by the way. Think about this for a moment. In order to get bread here on your table, something has to happen. At some point, somebody has to take wheat and do something to it purposefully. When you have some bread on your table at home, it did not get there by accident. Think about this, and perhaps this might help you as you pray the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. In order to have bread today, at some point, probably a year ago, somebody had to decide to do something with soil. In fact, actually, probably a year before that, somebody had to decide to keep something of a harvest. And then a year before you eat the bread, somebody decided to do something with soil at a particular moment that took a lot of training and a lot of skill and a lot of learning. They decided to do something with soil, to put that seed in the soil, and then to look after that soil, and also to pray slash hope that it rains at some point. And eventually, after a while, a process that nobody really understands, even the people that tell us they do, somehow that piece of seed dies and comes to life again as a plant. Side note, we're going to get to the Easter story shortly uh, in our story of Lent, and we're going to tell the story of the resurrection about how Jesus' death brings life, and we're all going to want to say that's really weird, despite the fact that it happens in our daily life all the time. 
So this seed dies and it grows into a plant and somebody harvests that. And then somebody else at some point, another time, you're not quite sure when, they decided that they were gonna be the kind of person that processed wheat. So they come along with their truck that somebody built at some point and planned and intention and they brought this truck along and that wheat got put on there, taken to a factory that somebody at some point purposed and intentioned and built and that wheat becomes flour. At which point, another person turns up, and they come along and they say, we use flour with some other ingredients that other people have purposed and intentioned at some point in the past, and they bring together all of those ingredients, they mix them together, they apply heat. Very strange the things that happen when you apply heat. And out of this procedure comes bread. But it's not done yet. Somebody then has to have planned at some point, what they're going to do is they're going to take a truck, and they're going to take bread, and they're going to deliver it to supermarkets. And then you, on your way home from work one day, get a call from your loved one who says, we have no bread. And you go to the supermarket and bread is there by magic. Um, and, and you take this bread and you come home and you eat this bread and you have only just begun thinking about it. But a long time before that, somebody started the process. And when we pray, give us today our daily bread. It does just open up in our hearts if we want a realization that for God to answer our prayers today, something needs to have happened a long time before that. And we come on this journey. Bread is purposed. And one of the purposes, of course, is bread is that you need calories. Some of us less than others. I hear that call. <laughs> Thank God for Lent. <laughs> we need calories. Because at some point in our, in our development as humans, we were able to turn the calorific content of the things we put in our mouths into energy and not die. It's a remarkable process that we're in, but we need it. And what happened then over the course of history, bread became symbolic, there's that word again, of nourishment. So in many of the cultures of the world, the word bread and the word food are actually the same. In fact, some people have suggested that it would be okay to translate the Lord's Prayer as, give us today our food for today. Give us today our calories that we need. It's a prayer that we might stay alive. So bread becomes a symbol of life. But then there's wine. Wine, contrary to how you feel on a Friday night, is not necessary for your survival. <laughs> That's the controversial bit of the sermon this morning, right? <laughs> Someone's like, oof, I was with him, and then he said that. You have not met my workplace. Um, my goodness, that's so toxic to say. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> But what wine has long symbolized in the traditions of the world is the joy of life. And as much as bread symbolizes the, the, the life that we have, people have long looked at wine and said, this tells us that whoever made us also wants us to have joy, wants us to be happy, that there is more to life than just survival. It's only humans that make and drink wine. But there's purpose here. Something is purposed in bread and in wine. But of course, bread and wine also have further symbolism than just nourishment. If I say to you one day, hey, do you want to come to my house for supper? I guarantee you, until now, because you guys all have really dark senses of humor, so you will say this from now on, I appreciate, but normally, ordinary human beings, if you said to one another, do you want to come to my house for supper? You would not say, yes, because I am in need of calories. Am I right? You would not say, yes, I will come to your house because I need nourishment. And if you're offering nourishment, I'll come to your house for nourishment. Because when I invite you to my house or you invite someone else to your house, something else is going on there. 
and it's not calorific exchange. Am I right? When somebody invites you to your house, they realize this person is extending friendship towards me. This person wants to build relationship with me. This person wants to show hospitality to me. You see, because humans are not animals, and hopefully you've noticed this. When humans eat and animals eat, it's very different. And if you haven't spotted this when watching your dog, either you need to really up your manners or you need to think long and hard about the absolute truth that your dog is not a human. <laughs> because humans and animals eat differently. Why? Because animals engage in calorific exchange. Humans throughout history have applied symbolism and significance to meals that are much further than just calories. Meals symbolize friendship. They symbolize intimacy. They symbolize welcome. You ever have a business meeting and it goes really well? Let's go out and eat. What are we doing when we just go out and eat? Oh, we're hungry from the business meeting? Yes, but also eating together tells us that we have established something here. Or perhaps it's a friend you've not seen in a long time or a friend you've fallen out with and you meet together to have a meal together because meals draw us to an equal table in unity. What about a date? You take someone on a date, that meal is carrying significance, isn't it? That meal is doing something. If you're ever at a restaurant and you look over and you see a couple on their own with a candle looking at the wine list, you don't look at that and go, they must have been hungry. You think, oh look, they're on a date. And you know that they are just reminding themselves of their love for each other, or perhaps hoping to love each other, or perhaps one person's hoping to love, uh, love the one person and the other person's trying to get a free meal. I don't know, but, but you know that something is going on there beyond simply calories, because meals have significance. I wanna suggest the meal table is multi-symbolic. Because on one hand, the meal does signify hunger. It does satisfy hunger. But on the other hand, maybe you call it multi-symbolic, Maybe you say that the meal table has trans significance. Because in one sense, nothing changes about the food. But in another sense, everything is different. You eat a meal with your loved one, or perhaps you have somebody over to your house. And if you're like any of the Canadians that I've met, when you invite somebody to your house, you have enough food for about 10 times the people coming. I, I am assuming that's the kind of deep Scottish roots because we do that in Scotland as well. It's like we're prepping a meal. Let's assume an army come. And, and so there's always lots of leftovers. The meal is the same calorific meal you can meet, eat on any day of the week, but you come together with friends and this meal has symbolism. This meal has memory. There's a reason you can remember significant meals in your life and there's a reason there's some meals that you had last week you can't remember. Because once the symbolism comes, meal starts to mean something else. What's really curious is the next day when you eat the leftovers, still just food, it's still just calories. But as you're tasting it, something goes on in your mind and your heart where you're like, oh, that was a great meal last night. But again, you're not thinking, well, that was a great meal last night because it really satisfied my hunger. It's drawing you back into, man, it was great to have those people with us. It was great to have those friends with us. Essentially, I'm taking a very long time to say this. When things obtain meaning, they really do have that meaning. The meal is more than just calories because it really is more than just calories. 
So this brings us to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 is part of a kind of long extended argument that Paul is having with the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is, I think the best way to say it politely is a real mess. And Paul is largely astounded by the sort of behavior that's going on in this church uh, to the extent that he kind of at times criticizes them for having barely human behavior. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but he gets at some point during the process of his discussion with them onto a conversation about communion. But in the way that Paul writes, as he builds this communion, he realizes the need to get distracted from time to time into other issues, which means this argument runs for about a chapter and a half but it can be kind of hard to track because of the way we often in the modern world tend to read biblical text, that we read it in chunks. So all the other stuff that he's dealing with around this major argument, we get a little bit lost with. So what I've done for us this morning is I just want to read the sections from 1 Corinthians 10 through 11 that actually are holding the sort of spine of his discussion. Because I think when we do it like that, you can actually see really clearly what he's doing. He begins like this. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Now think about what Paul's doing here, just for a very brief moment. He's leaning into the language of symbolism. That somehow this bread and this cup is the body and blood of Jesus that we are participating in. Clever choice of words there. Participating, not eating, but there's something happening that has to do with the body and blood of Jesus at the table. Now, my advice to you is don't at this point get caught up in the long arguments that have taken place over church history to decide exactly how this works. At some level, communion is going to require you to lean back into the mystery of God and say something is happening here. I'm not entirely sure how or what, but there's a reason why I think that's important, and we'll see it now. Because Paul then says this, he says, because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And think about this. If there was a quiz right now, and the quiz said, what does Paul think the bread symbolizes? Those of us who have been in church a lot of years would say, oh, I know the answer to this question. It symbolizes the body of Jesus. And which Paul would then return to you and say, yes, but how does it symbolize the body of Jesus? And we would say, no, wait, David just told us not to ask that question. But he's asking a different question. Because pay attention to the double switch that Paul drops for us here. When we hear symbolism of the body of Jesus, the bread has symbolic value, Western Christians seem to exclusively focus on how is this bread the body of Jesus. But you see what Paul's doing? He blows it even wider open than that. As he says... Somehow, not only is this bread the body of Jesus, you are the body of Jesus. So he adds, like, you know, Paul's like, never have one symbol when you can have two symbols <laughs> about the same thing. So somehow when we approach the table and pay attention to this, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ, but the bread also symbolizes the body of Christ. Because Paul regularly, through all of his letters, talks about the bread as the body of Christ and the church as the body of Christ. Paul's like, what if at this moment when we come to the table, both those ideas overlap? That somehow you take from the body of Christ that pushes you back and reminds you of what Jesus did for us. It also calls you to the present to remind you that Jesus is with us, but then it pushes you into the future as Jesus' people 
as a body, as a community. You'll notice just at the end of our, uh, of our communion moment this morning, Tori led us in this response. Christ died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Past, present, future. And it speaks to the same sense of what's going on, that not, but so often we get stuck in this question of how is this the body of Jesus? And that's the question the Western Christians are fascinated by. Is it bread? Is it not bread? Is it flesh? Is it not flesh? Is it a memory? Is it not a memory? The New Testament is largely disinterested in this question. The question the New Testament is interested in is when you take it, do you become the body of Jesus? Do you, the church, become unified as Jesus's people? John of Damascus in the seventh century, I know you were reading him on your way here this morning. Uh, he said this, for since we partake of one bread, we all become one body of Christ and one blood and members one of another, being of one body with Christ. What do you think he's trying to tell us? That somehow around this table, we are brought into unity. So now let's follow Paul's argument a little further. Paul jumps now, because he gets sidetracked by a few things. He then comes back to, in verse 17 of chapter 11, he says this. <laughs> I love this. I think you've got to read this with a little bit of humor. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Way to build this up, Paul. <laughs> for your meetings do more harm than good. <laughs> and you're like, uh-huh, <laughs> I've been to that meeting. Hopefully not this morning. <laughs> In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, so this has multiple points. Always be nervous when somebody says, I have issues, firstly. <laughs> it's just like, oh my goodness, it's a bulleted list. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Side note, just to clarify, in Paul's day, Christians fell out over stuff. That, that, that burned a lot slower than I imagined. <laughs> the, so Paul says, there are divisions, I love this, and to some extent, I believe it. If you've been in church five minutes, you're like, yes, I believe it. <laughs> Paul's like, to some extent, I believe it. And then he jumps ahead a little bit, just in his argument to verse 20. He says, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because Paul's talking to them about the communion table. He's talking about the fact that they gather together, they take bread, they take the cup, and yet somehow Paul's like, but it's not the Lord's Supper. Whatever you're doing that you think is communion, it's not communion. Mm, how is that possible? Well, he explains it for us. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. But don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul's problem here is that they are not engaging in the symbolism of the Eucharist properly. But significantly, his problem isn't, he doesn't describe the problem as you don't believe the right things about what happens to the bread and the wine. He says the problem is how you're behaving around about the table. Specifically, you're not sharing food together. Now, we know that in Paul's time, the, the communion service was part of a larger meal. 
And it seems that some people are coming and overeating and overdrinking, while other people remain hungry. Now, our best guess as scholars about what's going on here is that in Paul's time, we know that the churches had a lot of people who would be classified as poor or slaves or oppressed in it. Now, oppressed people don't have a lot of freedom, so they wouldn't have the agency to choose when they go to a Christian gathering. The people that would have the agency to get there first would be the rich, the wealthy, and the well-fed. So they're coming to the service and treating it like a bit of a party and overeating. And then the people who come who are, if you're in one of these categories of poor, slaved, or oppressed in the first century, you're almost definitely calorific deficient. What we see, you see this in Acts chapter 2, we see that for many people, the communion table was how they stayed alive. They were actually being kept alive by eating at the communion table. So how does Paul solve this? They're not eating properly. Well, notice what Paul does. It's really quite fascinating because he then drops this piece of text into the story. Immediately afterwards, you might recognize this piece of text from earlier. Paul says, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Look how it reaches into the future until he comes. Fascinatingly, in order to deal with the unity division that is causing problems in the church, Paul reaches back to the symbolism on the other side of the table, that this is the body of Jesus, that he was broken so that we would not be broken, that he was killed so that we would not be killed. He has absorbed all of this into it. The lack of unity suggests that we haven't understood what Jesus has done for us. It is his body, and he came to bring us unity. So Paul continues, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a polite way of saying they've died. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Oh, and when I come, I will give you further directions. Which, by the way, that's like when your mom says, wait till dad gets home. (laughs) I have other things to say, but I am not writing them down. (laughs) To eat without unity on the practical side of the symbol of the table negates the mysterious side of the table. That somehow this is the body of Jesus, but practically we too are the body of Jesus. And when we are not in unity... It is not the presence of Jesus at the table. And some people are literally dying in the Corinthian community. And we have a tendency when we read this text to push it up and over-spiritualize it as some sort of future judgment from God. But look what Paul's saying. Examine yourself. And if you read it in context, he's actually saying, do you need to eat here? Like if you have the ability to eat and fill yourself, do that before you come so that you leave the table free for those who are unable to feed themselves. My hope is that none of us in this room today are starving. If you are, then please do tell us because we would want to help you with that. But I do think that we often come to the table lonely 
I think we come to the table scared. I think we can come to the table feeling excluded. I think we can come to the table feeling ignored. And if the table is the body of the Lord that calls us to be the body of the Lord, then nobody should feel alone or fearful or excluded or ignored as they come to the table. The table should be a space that calls us to be the body of Jesus, that all are welcome at the table, that there is unity at the table, that maybe at the table you can find Jesus, but maybe you can also find Jesus in us. And this is why for me, the table has mystery and practicality to it, and it needs both those things. In ways that we cannot understand, Jesus is present to us at the table. But in ways that we often resist, the table calls us to be present to each other. And perhaps it's easy to believe in the miracle of Jesus' presence, but the real miracle we need is that somehow we are present to one another in this space, in this room. And this beautiful reciprocity in this, that somehow we confess Christ and the table is present, which calls us to be present, which then sends us out to be present to each other and to the world. This is the body of the Lord. This is the body of the Lord. I dare say there's probably something you want to talk about in that. I could be wrong. <laughs> but if you have a thought or a comment or some conflict about what I'm saying, you'd like to ask for some clarity, you'd like to appreciate some clarity, or just what is the Holy Spirit doing in you as we say this? I have Kristen on your left and Tori on your right. If you've got a sort of thought or a question, throw up a hand. I'd love to hear uh, what you're thinking. If you don't have a question, that's also perfectly okay. I have like a whole extra sermon in here that I can just keep going. <laughs> it's both slightly true and also a threat. So like, like just intercede for someone to have a question, you know. Oh, we have a question just down, down here. Tori's got it. Oh, no. Tori and Kristen are going to have a fight about who gets there first. Remember the body of the Lord, friends. So, yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, sometimes I feel awkward taking the bread and the juice because I'm not baptized. Okay. It, it's interesting. Um, sorry, and forgive me, I, I didn't... I should have phrased that opener to my question better. Your personal awkwardness is not something just of fascination or interest to me. Forgive me. Thank you for your vulnerability and your confession in that. Um, what I was about to say was interesting is, is the, the, the first question we heard in the first service was, uh, was to the same, um, the same theme uh, of this question of welcome at the table. And I, I, here's, here's my suspicion. I think most of us who have come from tradition outside of this church regularly feel awkward at the table. I, I get, what I'm beginning to learn is that most of us have experience of a table that was guarded. Uh, a table that said, yes, if, and yes, when, and yes, but. Um, and it saddens me, actually, because the table of the Lord was this thing of unity. 
And actually, if you think about what Paul has said, the table of the Lord that does not welcome people to it is not the table of the Lord. So don't be stressed about a table that you don't feel welcome at because it is not the table of the Lord if you are not welcome at it and you want to eat at it. So I have no desire to overwhelm anyone's agency and say you have to come whether you like it or not. That was, that is, you know, you're always welcome to not come to the table. But I'd love for all of us as a community to think about why would we not come to the table? And if you notice, Tori said this beautifully, I thought this morning, don't exclude yourself. Right? Don't be the person. So the reason we say this, and, and I, I'm, I'm realizing even today that we need to be more explicit in this, so I apologize for not being more explicit on this and leaving any of you in a place of feeling uncertain. The reason we use this weekly is because I think the words are beautiful of this invitation that we put on the screen. You've heard it already in the service. But the reason we love this is I think in a really beautiful way, in a really poetic way, this invitation does a lot of theological heavy lifting for us. Um, and so, like Tori invited you this morning, pay attention when I read this to you, because really this is as close as you'll get to a boundary at the table here. Number one is our confession. It is the table of the Lord, not of Westside. You know, Westside has not died for you. Westside likely will not die for you. <laughs> but Jesus did, and it's his table, and he invites you to it. And that invitation is to everyone who wants to love him and love him more. If you don't want to love Jesus and you're not interested in Jesus and you've been dragged here this morning because somebody did and you respect that person but you're not interested, don't feel any compulsion to come to the table. But if you love Jesus, come to the table right? and feel absolutely welcome there. Jesus' story is constantly a Jesus who found people trying to push people away from him and Jesus keeps pulling them back towards himself. So, so our, our table is open to people who are comfortable with this. If you're not comfortable with this, if you're like, you know what, that doesn't feel like me and I don't really want to partake in this, then feel fully welcome to be here and don't feel weird about not taking. But if you want to take at this table, if you want to receive at this table, then please always feel welcome here. It is the Lord's table. We are all failures in this space. We have all done things that if Jesus worked this way, we could be excluded very, very easily but we do not believe in the excluding God. So you might have a list of reasons that are not cited here, that in your past you've been told this is why you can't come to this table. Uh, those are intentionally not listed here. Maybe you did something that your last church said, that means you can't be part of us. It's still the Lord's table, and you are welcome at it. You know, maybe your relationship status, maybe your gender identity, maybe your sexuality are things that the church has told you you're not welcome here. Jesus is the Jesus who is open to everybody that wants to love him. So there are places where we will have theological positions on things. There are places where we will say things about this is what we believe, this is what we believe about this, this is what we believe about that. But the table should not be guarded the table is open for you to come and meet your Lord and Savior there. And so, like, please hear that from me. And, and, and I appreciate the vulnerability of your question because my suspicion is there are more of us in the room with the same question. And, and there are things, there are many, many things that we can disagree on. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have to work that hard to find things we could all fall out on in this room, right? Am I right? <laughs> but let's not make the table be that space, right? Because this is the space where we gather together and we are the body of Jesus, and we announce to the world that there is something greater 
in us than all of our disagreements. And that's this confession that Jesus loved us and died for us and called us to be his people. So if you are not baptized, come and take communion. If you wanna be baptized, like I can fill a bathtub quickly. So like, you know, <laughs> so like, like, you know, but please don't exclude yourself on the basis of things that you have put in the way. This is our, <laughs> this is as close to us being exclusionary as we can be. If you don't care about Jesus and don't want to care about Jesus, then you don't need to come to the table. Right? But for the rest of us, let's come and meet him there. And I might just suggest, even if you don't care about Jesus, maybe think about that. I'm aware of the time. Um, and so I'm gonna, unless, there, was, there, was there another question? There was another question. And okay, let's take one more question, but forgive me if the question ends up being, uh, I'll do a podcast on that afterwards. Uh, I was just thinking about the logistical Oh, it's challenges. Phil. Phil, I'm definitely going to do a podcast yeah. on this afterwards. Doing, doing together, man. <laughs> Sorry, um, man, I cut you off. Go for it. It's fine. Uh, just, some of what the, the text was pointing to is uh, some of the problems around logistics of actually doing the symbol well and what that represents and how it's interpreted. Mm. Um, but then we also see that even this morning, uh, there's logistical challenges that relate to us coming together as a community and mm. being that body as well. Mm. And I mean, that works this way through church history, the way that traditions are developed, but also uh, individual responsibility and mm. how we react to the logistics in order to engage with it. Yeah. And so I just wanted to kind of just open up that part of the discussion of how do we as believers interact with the different forms that we have around the symbol in mm. order to make it meaningful, even though it may be challenging. Yeah, and this is, like, this is a really good question. And, and I think if I could be, well, let me, say it, let me say it in a positive light. The space for growth for us, let's just talk about our community for a second, is if the table is just a space that we come, receive from, return to our seats, and then just do nothing else, then, then we are falling into that trap of it just being symbolic of Jesus' body, not symbolic of us being the body of Jesus. So um, this is a journey and a space, and it's not a, a sufficient answer to your question, Phil, so forgive me, but, but this is a question of how do we as a church journey towards that? And it's a question that draws all of us into that question. It struck me, I was thinking about it, I, I stood at the back this morning and was just sort of watching the service unfold, and I thought there's actually even something kind of neat in taking Eucharist, wishing the peace to each other, and then having coffee together that actually creates space for us to raise the question of who here needs me to be the body of Jesus to them. Um, and ultimately, and maybe I'm not answering your question, but what, it, what your sort of thought process triggered in me was that question of how do we as a community make space to be the body of Jesus to one another. Because at some level, that's what Paul's talking about here. There's an injustice going on in your community. The injustice is some people are hungry and some people are overfed. Um, these are probably very small communities where that's quite easy to see. In a larger space, it's easy to sort of miss one another. Um, and so if you'll accept it as a response to the question, I, I just want to resonate with it to say that's something that's in my own heart of let's 
you know, when we, when we jump over new sort of challenges and say, okay, let's, let's look at what the early church were doing and say, how do we learn from that? It now creates new things for us to think about. But I think what Phil's thinking about there is exactly the sort of thing we should be thinking about. Because aside from all of the sort of spirituality of the text that we read today, Paul is actually talking about very specific logistical challenges. These logistical challenges of how do we be the body of Jesus to one another? That doesn't do full justice to your question, but I, I want, if you're okay with me just leaving it out there as, that's something I think we should all think about. Um, and, and I want to, as a leader, think about how we grow in that particular direction. I hope that's okay. So um, let's do this. Uh, uh, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong keynote. Let's end with the creed as we love to do here at Westside because, as one of my friends always say, when you get to the end of the sermon and go, what the heck was that? What you can now do is go, well, at least I still believe in God. <laughs> so why don't you stand with me? Thank you for your comments, your vulnerability, your questions. Uh, let us confess what we believe together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And let me pray this over you. It is not lost on me that it was St. Patrick's Day on Friday. So let me pray these words that St. Patrick beautifully said to us all. That Christ be with me, that Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. May you go with the Christ who is everywhere, at the table, in our hearts, in us as a community, and be Christ to his world. Grace and peace to you, friends.